Father, we are opening your holy, inspired, and inerrant word. The very words that dropped from your lips will now grace our ears. Will you do the divine labor of working it into our hearts? Some of our people have experienced hurt this week. Let your preach word be the divine hug to their wounded soul. Some of our people have shed tears this week. Let your holy word wipe those tears away. Some of our people have experienced a sinful fall this week. Let your restoring word rehab them back into a righteous walk that is consistent with the gospel they possess. Some of our people have experienced frustrations this week. Let your precious word give them proper perspective on those frustrations. We need thee. Every hour, we need thee. Oh, bless us now, our Savior, we come to thee. Jesus, you surrender to hell's worst that we might attain heaven's best. You were stripped that we might be clothed, wounded that we might be healed, a thirst that we might drink, tormented that we might be comforted, made a shame that we might inherit glory. Dear King, please preserve us from this present evil world so that its smiles never allure us, nor its frown terrify us, nor its vices defile us, nor its errors delude us. Keep us pure as your bride. Expel every rebel lust and reign supreme in our affections. Thank you for your word and its searching power. Read our mail. Demonstrate to us that you are the heart knower. We have wild hearts. Seemingly untamable. They constantly fly away from you as a bird before a man. Our hearts are also leaky. Your word pumps them full of holy affections for you on Sunday, but it leaks out by Monday. Give us deep gospel hearts that carry home the water of grace. Let us behold the beauty of your holiness and not merely be bystanders, but partake of the beauty ourselves. Show us the more we know, the less we know. The more we love, the more there is to love. Take us deeper into theology and deeper into humility. Dear Father, show us from this text that we may have a weak hold on you but you have an eternal hold on us. That's the corporate plea. Now, a personal plea. Almighty God, I would think with how many times I've stood before your people that I would become less and less dependent upon you. But here I am again before your flock and I'm just as dependent on you in this moment as I've ever been. I feel the weight of my task to bring your word to your people. As I open the text, would your spirit begin opening hearts? As I labor, help it not be merely in the flesh, 
but in the spirit. From the corporate plea to the personal plea, this is what you have, Lord. Your people pleading. Amen. We find in our text a building dedication. Not like the ones you're used to. No, no red ribbon cutting. They are not serving cheap finger foods and bad punch. They serve one of the longest recorded prayers in the Bible. It's an incredible, marvelous prayer. It's a bit surprising though. If someone asked you to say the prayer at the dedication of a church building, would you forget to mention the building? In Solomon's prayer of dedication, he hardly mentions the temple. On the day the building is opened, Solomon is saying, this is not about the building. There are three movements in this temple dedication prayer. Knowing the God of the temple, verses 22 through 29. Knowing when to call on this God, verses 30 through 53. Knowing how to encourage the people to remain faithful to this God, verses 54 through 61. Knowing the God of the temple, knowing when to call on this God, knowing how to encourage people to remain faithful to this God. We will begin with knowing the God of the temple. Verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel. And spread out his hands toward heaven. Matthew Henry used to pray this way. Hands raised high during public prayer. You might not think of it as such, but this is a posture of submission, humility, and vulnerability. Our traditional posture of prayer, heads bowed, eyes closed, and hands folded, was unknown to the Jews. What is the proper posture of prayer? Should we stand, sit, kneel, lay face first on the ground? We know from our text that Solomon started out standing, but at some point fell to his knees. Hands still extended to heaven with both postures. Beloved, no specific posture is necessary. The soul can be on its knees when the body is not. It's the posture of the soul, not the body, that is vital. Solomon approaches some platform raised high above the people. Thousands of Israelite onlookers watch as Solomon climbs the steps, reaches the top, then extends his hands out toward heaven, and at the top of his lungs, he begins to plead. A king pleading for his people. This platform, according to 2 Chronicles 6.12, is right in front of the bronze altar used for making blood sacrifices. Solomon's basis for approaching God is through sacrifice. Prayer only made possible by the provision of atonement. Every time we pray, We stand before a sacrifice. 
We stand before an altar. That altar is Calvary. That blood sacrifice is the crucifixion of Christ. Prayer made possible by the atonement of Christ for our sins. Solomon stood with hands stretched out on the basis of sacrifice and said, verse 23, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. He's speaking of the incomparability of God. There is no God like you. Not in heaven, not on earth, not in some other nation, not in mythology. Solomon extols the greatness and uniqueness of God. No God like you. He begins his prayer with the incomparability of God. God, you are unique and unchanging. No one can be likened to you. No works like your works. No words like your words. No love like your love. You unswervingly keep covenant. Your love is measureless. It overflows any cup, any bowl, any ocean, any planet. Your love does not depend upon our always perfect performance. See, a perfectionist struggles to pray that and mean it. Because perfectionism is a failure to trust and rest that God loves you in your imperfection. We are not approaching God on the basis of our good works or our good performance or our perfection in any area. We approach on the basis of sacrifice. We move from the incomparability of God in verse 23 to the trustworthiness of God in verse 24. You have kept with your servant David my father what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. God, you promised to provide a temple where your presence would dwell. You, you promised my father. You made that promise to my father, to our nation. Now you've delivered. You're the deliverer. You deliver on promises. Promises made, promises kept. You did exactly as you said. Every detail is before us today. We can build our lives on your words. We can count on them not to fall. We can align our decisions with your promises knowing they are secure. Your mouth writes the check. Your hand cashes them. We do not have to waver. We do not have to worry. We can trust you. You are trustworthy. Worthy. Beloved, our souls need our mouths to vocalize the trustworthiness of God. You must recount God's faithfulness in prayer, His faithfulness to you, 
and his faithfulness to his people throughout the centuries. Verse 25. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David my father what you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before you on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way and walk before me as you have walked before me. <laughs> In other words, God, you have kept the promise about the building. Now keep the promise about the Davidic dynasty. Solomon acknowledges God as the God of Israel. He has a personal relationship with this people group. Solomon is actually praying the Bible back to God. Praying what God had said to his father. He's praying the Bible back to God. When you pray scripture, you don't have to worry about praying the wrong thing. You might ask, Kyle, if God is going to do it anyway, why pray? God works to get us to pray about something. He wants us to have this fellowship with him. Prayer is asking God for things God wants. It's not that we want too much from God, but we often want the wrong things. We move from the incomparability of God, verse 23, to the trustworthiness of God in verse 24 and 25, to the unboxability of God, verse 26 and 27. He prays. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. This temple does not box God. There is no building that can contain him. If your God can be contained within a building, you need a new God. Here is an Israelite king who has built a magnificent structure, but whose theology is rich enough that he understands the structure cannot domesticate God. He's uncontainable. Too immense to be housed in the temple. Marvel at the immensity of God. His majesty dwarfs our universe. Never put God in a box. Even a box as big and beautiful as the temple. You must see the infinite distance and disproportion between us and him. The earth cannot contain him much less the temple. You do not stroll into God's presence like you are his equal. You don't do the Conor McGregor walk. You, you don't strut before this unboxable God. The whole temple illustrates there is a way you must approach the sovereign. He's transcendent. He's above and beyond us in his royal dignity. One scholar points out that transcendence does not destroy intimacy. But it does give intimacy goosebumps. Knowing the God of the temple 
the incomparability of God, the trustworthiness of God, the unboxability of God, the watchfulness of God. The watchfulness of God shows that God is accessible, reachable, knowable. The watchfulness of God reveals he's not too busy for us. He's intimate, personal, present with us. I want you to notice the words of intimacy. Ear and I. Ear in verse 28. I in verse 29. Both ear and I reveal the watchfulness of God over his children. Verse 28. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God. Listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day. That your eyes may be open night and day toward this house. The place of which you have said, my name shall be there. That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. What extraordinary intimacy. Our God hears us. What then is the house for but that God might hear? His eyes and ears are open to his people. He watches over them day and night. God always sees your needs and listens to your prayers. Three different words for prayer are used. There's a nuance of difference between them. Why does God hear us? Solomon said, this house I built can't contain you yet. The first word of verse 28, yet. That's grammar of grace. Never because of, always in spite of, God hears us. You grammar geeks, this is not causative. We do not cause the hearing. God answers prayers because he is merciful, not because sinners deserve it. We work from what is always true to what does not have to be true. God doesn't need Israel. Israel needs God. God doesn't need this temple. Israel needs what this temple represents. That God is tabernacling with his people, moving into their neighborhood, listening and watching them, concerned for them. The temple speaks of the watchfulness of God. The temple houses God's name. The text says it houses God's name. Now, Woodhouse said, access to God's name on earth meant access to God's ear in heaven. The temple is the visible assurance of Yahweh's attention. Christian, lonely Christian, no one notices you. Christian, God sees you. He doesn't not notice you. You have his ear and his eye. That's a classic way of saying you are the recipient of his care and attentiveness. He's constantly looking and constantly listening. 
He does not doze off, for the sovereign doesn't need sleep. His attentiveness toward you never wavers when you get boring. Your boredom, your uninterestingness, doesn't make his attentiveness lessen in the slightest. You have his ear and his eye, not because you deserve it, but because Jesus purchased it on Calvary. Knowing the God of the temple, now knowing when to call on this God. This section begins seven petitions or seven situations where God's people should pray to him. These seven are really a comprehensive sweep. They cover a broad brush stroke of situations. Solomon is modeling how to pray in different scenarios, showing God's people how to pray in every situation they will face. The seven prayers cover anything you would ever need or ever face. It is full and comprehensive because it was meant to be the summary of all future prayers offered in the temple. Seven potential need situations in Israel. Here's how you pray through these scenarios. Here is what you pray in these situations. All these situational prayers flow from a correct view of God. Solomon adores God for who he is and then from a humble heart prays through situations. Now some praying is no more than a kind of wishful thinking. That's not what we have here. Kyle, I just, I just can't pray. One pastor rightly pointed out that our difficulty praying could be the expression of our uncertainty, our weak faith, or our unbelief. Knowing when to call on this God, Seven situations. We will walk through them one at a time. Situation one, when you face injustice. You are not left without a prayer when you face injustice. God's people are no strangers to injustice, not then and not now. Solomon wanted the thousands of people listening to him to expect injustice and to know how to process it biblically and prayerfully. Verse 31. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before the altar in, in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. It's like this. In this situation, God, when your people face injustice, hear them, condemn the guilty, and vindicate the righteous. Solomon believed in God's justice as much as he believed in God's grace. This specific injustice involves a man wronging his neighbor, some dispute that cannot be resolved. Expose the guilty, vindicate the innocent. We can pray like this because we are God's elect. We are his chosen people. We are his treasured possession. We are the Israel of God. Someone cheated you? 
delivered a bad product after you paid them? Someone took advantage of you? Overcharged you for something? An employer treating you unfairly? Church, you will seethe. You will seethe with an insatiable desire for vengeance unless you learn in prayer to approach God as judge. You cannot grow bitter when you see God as the final judge. Situation one, when you face injustice. Situation two, after you've sinned. Verse 33. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy, why? Because they have sinned against you. And they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house. Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel. And bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. Solomon desires for the temple to be the primary place of interaction between a sinful people and their forgiving God. The human heart is not naturally inclined to obey God. Solomon anticipates sin. Anticipates God's people needing to ask for forgiveness for those sins. He anticipates them turning from God, that's sinning, and the need for them to turn back to God, that's repentance. Solomon wants the temple to be the place people bring their repentance. There is no forgiveness of sins without repentance. God's people are repenting people. They love to repent. Don't fight repentance. Run to repentance. Solomon knows the people will sin. He doesn't know if they will keep repenting. So he prays for future repentance. Make this prayer yours. God, keep me repenting. I will fight against it. I will excuse my sin. I will turn a blind eye to my sin. Please don't allow it, Father. Keep me repenting. Help me to love repentance. Make me where I am never happier than when I am repenting. Solomon pleads to God on behalf of his people. And he says there will be so many scenarios where your people will get themselves into trouble. Please. They will dive into sin. Please keep them repenting. After a moment of explosive anger, make me repent. After gossiping about someone, put me to repentance. After looking at something inappropriate, Break me to repentance. After envying something someone else has, lead me to repentance. After not telling the full truth, shading it to make me sound better, drop me to my knees in repentance. After nursing a grudge, petting it, reliving it in my mind over and over again, Please kill that sin in me. After 
failing to prioritize God's word and his church, bring me to both in godly repentance. Showing God's people how to pray in every situation they would face. Situation three. When you were facing the consequences for your sin. Verse 35. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you. If they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. When you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. The skies shrivel. There is no rain. The drought is a direct result of their sin, a consequence of their sin. Israel's crops depended on well-timed rains in the spring and fall. God at, time, at times withheld those rains as a consequence for his people's sin. This was one of the severest disciplines for an agricultural people. When the blessing of rain is held back, it's time to pray. When you reap what you have sown, it's time to pray. When your sinful choices bear devastating consequences, it's time to pray. You will at times have to bear the full, painful, embarrassing consequences for your sin. But in those moments, do not think you are cut off from God. You run to Him. You turn from your sin in genuine repentance and He will grant forgiveness for your sin. I guess, apparently, there is a tendency for the people of God to wallow in those sin repercussions and think that all hope is lost. Life is over. I've ruined it for good this time. When you are in the middle of facing the consequences for your sin, when you are eating in the pig pen, when you've lost someone's trust, you've broken some relationship, you've tarnished your reputation in the community, you are in bankruptcy, you were fired, you have tested positive for some venereal disease. Dear prodigal, you bring your embarrassed, stinky, dirty robes to the temple and see if the Father isn't just waiting to welcome you home. You have not out God's grace. Come home. Solomon expects a lot of prodigal sons and daughters to make use of the temple. The seven prayers cover anything you would ever need or face. Situation four, during national, national calamities. Verse 37. If there is a famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates whatever plague whatever sickness there is 
whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all the, your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hand toward this house, then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each one whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. The little phrase, affliction of his own heart, has the thought of a plague of the heart. A plague of the heart brought on the plague of the nation. A heart plague, sin, brought on caterpillars or some calamity to destroy crops. Many ills could inflict the land. If Israel were persistent in their rebellion, then sometimes they received a plague. Biblical lands were prone to plagues. Some brought on by sin and others not. There is no mention of sin bringing these particular plagues. We should not always make a one-to-one correlation between disasters and God's judgment. Our nation isn't in a covenant the way the nation of Israel was. However, we need to remember that national calamities can gut a nation and should lead us to prayer. Disastrous things happen. Hear your people, God, during national calamities. Situation five. When you look at the nations. 41. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, or they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Solomon did not want the temple to remain Israel's best-kept secret, a vacation spot hid from the tourists. He expects the nations to come and share in Israel's privileges. This prayer signals an open door for non-Israelites to worship the Lord. This is anticipating a day when all nations, tongues, and tribes will bow before Israel's Yahweh. This prayer is fully realized in Revelation. All the nations come to the door of the temple. This this prayer is, is international in its scope. God is a missionary God. He desires the nations to come and drink. Jesus walking into Herod's temple said, This house is a house for all nations. Gentiles, non-Jews, us. This prayer is predicting us worshiping this morning. God did bring the nations in. There are, of course, There were hints of this even before. 
Rahab and Ruth already came to Jehovah from outside of Israel. The foreigner, the outsider, the pagan attracted to Yahweh. That's the purpose of the temple. Bring them in. This is a prayer for outsiders. The temple is not just for the Jews. The missionary heart of God is seen in his sovereign election of Israel and placing them in the land to stay and shine. Attraction getting. He loves the foreigner. The gospel is for the nations. The promise of Abraham is about the nations. If you take missions out of the Bible, you're simply left with the table of contents and the map. Missionaries are sometimes asked, where did you get a passion for the nations? And they answer, I read my Bible. Jehovah is not a tribal deity exclusive to Israel. We don't do world missions because we like to travel, but because God has promised us what he will do. He will bring some from all the nations to his throne. We didn't invent missions. God is the CEO of missions. Some churches have mission conferences where they highlight the gospel need around the world. I'm all about these conferences. The whole point of a missions conference is to make clear that the call is not for special, extraordinary people. It's for everyone. The nations came to Israel. We are to go to the nations. They were to stay and shine. We are to go and glow. How wonderful would it be for, for one of you to say, I was called to the mission field while hearing Solomon's temple dedication prayer exposited. This temple is as much evangelistic as it is historic. And the battle for souls will not merely be won by raising money and sending people. When we look to the nations, we must pray. They will hear of his saving grace. Seven potential need situations in Israel. Situation six, during war. 44. If your people go out to battle against their enemy... By whatever way you shall send them. And they pray to the Lord toward the city that they have chosen and, and the house that, that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name. Then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. The context here, currently Israel is in peacetime. Solomon knows it will not always be that way. Wars are coming. He gives the men a prayer for war, a prayer for battlefield moments. Now, we are not people who claim Old Testament promises to Israel for America, who think that every time we go to war, we are Old Testament Israel and God has promised to give us victory. We know our Bibles better than that. This is a specific Old Testament scenario. When Israelite men in battle do not have access to the temple because of their engagement in warfare. They are deployed and when they are, they can pray toward the temple and God will hear them. The temple per se 
rendered military prayers effective. If I was preaching in any other church, I don't think I'd say this, but for here. What renders military prayer effective today? Jesus. God hears prayers during war. Some of you were converted to Christ on the battlefield. Prayers for every situation Israel might find themselves. Situation 7, in captivity. Verse 46. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them. Let me pause here and point out that all men and women, boys and girls, are sinners. That there are none who have not sinned. Solomon condemns the entire human race. We have all sinned, and it still angers God, the verse says. 46, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to the enemy, so that they are carried away captive to the land of their enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies, who carried them captive and pray, and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them for they are your people and your heritage which you have brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. When 1 Kings opens, it appears Israel's flirtation with idolatry has passed. Solomon knew it would not last. In fact, he was flirting with idolatry himself. He knew Israel would likely sin and land in exile again. He prays. God, when they sin against you, and they continually will, when they are carried away as captives, slaves, when they repent and call on you for deliverance, please hear them, God. He's anticipating a future captivity, a defeat in war which would lead them to a nation of slaves just like they were back in Egypt. The iron smelting furnace of Egypt, but with a new nation. Captivity brings harsh conditions. They will have many wounds, self-inflicted by sin. Will God heal a wound inflicted by our own sin? He did with Israel. Restoration and grace are possible for those who plead for it. Even before they got into the temple, they were alerted to the possibility of blowing everything up and being driven out of the land. He will not defend them in war because of their covenant violation. Worst case scenario, they would be carted off to a foreign country. Church, you know they will be. 
400 years later, they will sin and refuse to repent, and Babylon would wreck the temple, the one being dedicated today, and wreck the city of Jerusalem and carry Israel off into captivity. Solomon doesn't even realize it, but he's predicting Babylonian exile and saying, when you are there, if you will just simply do this. See, Yahweh is reluctant to abandon his people. There's realism, yet hope. God brings his severity on his people to bring them back to his mercy. They can return to the promised land when they return to their covenant Lord. You students of the word, you know the book of 1 Kings was not written at the exact moment Solomon was praying this prayer. It was written much later. The book of Kings was written during the Babylonian exile to explain why Israel and Judah were in exile. Its purpose was to narrate Israel's history. Kings is a theological history explaining why God gave his people over to foreign nations. They had been in the land God had given them for 600 years, but now they are 500 miles away in captivity. They saw the temple fall. They flirted with idolatry, then married it. They refused to walk with God. After repeated refusals to listen to God's admonitions, he allowed their enemies to defeat them. They are to think back to Solomon's prayer, read it, and put into practice Situation number seven. All seven petitions share a common formula. When X happens, then God will hear and do Y. Each prayer starts when and then goes to then. They are living in the when, waiting for the then. Have you noticed in all seven petitions that stated when this happens and you call on God, then he will hear from heaven? Wait, what? It's interesting that it does not say God will hear from the temple. And he repeats it so many times. Verse 30, listen in heaven your dwelling place. Verse 32, then hear in heaven and act. Verse 34 and 36, then hear in heaven and forgive. Verse 39, then hear in heaven your dwelling place. Verse 43, hear in heaven your dwelling place. Finally, verse 45, then hear in heaven their prayer. It is a reminder to his captive people when the temple is gone, God will still hear them from heaven. It highlights the listening nature of God. They are seeing the temple broken down and they are reminded this is not about the building. It's about the God of the building. On the day the building was opened, Solomon told them it's not about the building. When this temple fades, we are tempted to wonder has the glory of the Lord left us? It has not all throughout the seven petitions, they were also told to pray toward the temple. 
That practice began before captivity, but continued during captivity. You may recall Daniel prayed toward where the temple used to stand. He prayed east. Church, are we, are we to pray toward anything in a certain direction? No. We do not pray toward a direction on a compass. We pray toward a person. Jesus is the one to whom we address our prayers. He's our east. He's our temple. In fact, on the cross, Jesus went into captivity for you. He faced the ultimate exile. He paid the penalty for your sin so you would not be eternally exiled from God. We need to be reminded that our greatest problem is a sin problem. And Jesus is the sin-bearing Savior. Non-Christian, non-Christian, in order to find forgiveness for your sins, you do not run to a gold temple. You run to a sinless Savior. You bank your eternity on His claims. The one who was exiled, not for His sins, but for the sins of His children. Knowing the God of the temple, knowing when to call on this God, knowing how to encourage the people to remain faithful to this God. Verse 54. Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord where he had knelt with hands outstretched toward heaven. Church, do you see what's happening? Solomon goes from petition to proclamation. From praying to preaching. From talking to God to talking to the people. From bowing down to giving a benediction. Solomon started his dedicatory prayer standing up. And somewhere along the way sunk to a kneeling position under the weight of his petitions. I can understand that. A prayer like that drops you to your knees. Standing when he began. Kneeling now. Verse 55. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed. He's he's declaring a blessing over the people, a benediction. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us. That he may incline our hearts to him. To walk in all his ways to keep his commandments, his statutes and his rules. Which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine with which I have pleaded before the Lord. Be near to the Lord our God day and night. In other words, his prayers never die. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel each day, as each day requires. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is none other. Let your heart therefore be. Let your heart therefore wholly trust in the Lord our God. What's he doing here? Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God. Walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as it is this day. Solomon is encouraging his people to remain faithful to God. Not one word of God 
has ever failed. The temple is a stunning visual aid. God keeps his promises. This temple does not put Israel on easy street, but puts them on their toes. They keep the commandments and walk out God's statues. The king's words, what is the impact of Solomon's words on his people? The king's words put their hearts at peace. Church, I have two take-homes for you. Two take-homes. Take-home number one, make sure your prayers, like Solomon, have gospel heat and good theology. Make sure your prayers, like Solomon, have gospel heat and good theology. Solomon prayed with passion, with fire, with urgency. Thomas Brooks said years ago, as a painted fire is no fire, a dead man is no man. So cold prayer is no prayer. In a painted fire, there is no heat. In a dead man, there is no life. In a cold prayer, there is no devotion and no blessing. Cold prayers are as arrows without heads, swords without edges, birds without wings. They pierce not, they cut not, they fly not up to heaven. Cold prayers do always freeze before they get to heaven. All oh, that Christians would chide themselves out of their cold prayers and chide themselves into a better and warmer frame of spirit when they make their supplication to the Lord. Church, we must repent of our cold prayers. Charles Spurgeon used to talk about how that if he could have the opening prayer of a meeting, he could set the tone for that whole meeting. Because one man praying with heat can warm the whole gathering. But prayer doesn't just need heat. It needs good theology. There's a, a story of when R.C. Sproul first went to teach at R.T.S. Jackson. That he would have a student pray before his systematic theology class every day. And then when the student sat down, R.C. would critique the student's prayer. He would show him all the various heresies that the student had prayed in the course of his prayer. And so this went on for a couple of weeks, and finally a student was asked to pray, and so he stood up in fear and trepidation and said, Our Father, which art in heaven, <laughs> hallowed be thy name, and so on. And then he sat down safe in the confidence that R.C. Sproul was not going to critique the Lord's Prayer. We don't just test sermons for good theology. We don't just test songs for good theology. We test our prayers. Regarding gospel heat and good theology, it's not either or. It's both and. Now, I debated giving you this, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. John Piper, in his own in-your-face type of way, said, is it true that prayer is a duty? Is a discipline? You can call it that. It's a duty the way it's a duty of a scuba diver to put on his air tank before he goes underwater. It's a duty the way the pilots have to listen to air traffic controllers. It's a duty the way that soldiers in combat have to clean their rifles and load their guns. 
It's a duty the way that hungry people have to eat food. It's a duty the way that a deaf man has to put in his hearing aid. It's a duty the way that the way a diabetic has to take insulin. It's a duty the way that Pooh Bear looks for honey. It's a duty the way that pirates look for gold. I hate the devil, Piper goes on to say. I hate the devil and the way he is killing some of you by persuading you that it is legalistic to be regular in your prayers as you are in your eating and sleeping and using the internet. Do you not see what a sucker he's making out of you? He's laughing up his sleeve at how easily it is to deceive Christians about the importance of prayer. Beloved, we should be a praying people. And not just on Sundays. Make sure your prayers like Solomon have gospel heat and good theology. Solomon prayed with arms outstretched for his people. We have watched him pray and exposited his prayer. And it leads us to our second take home. There was another king who prayed with arms outstretched for his people. There was another king who prayed with arms outstretched for his people. King Solomon with arms spread high interceded for his people. A king pleading on behalf of his people. He was the mediator between God and man. He was the go-between. He's doing priestly work. Sadly, Solomon failed to be what he urged his people to be. But there was another king. He also prayed with arms outstretched. But they were nailed outstretched. On the cross, Jesus pleaded on behalf of his people. He did the priestly work of intercession. Father, forgive them. I read a prayer like Solomon's and I think, wow, how weak are my prayers. Then I am reminded, my lousy, imperfect praying is made acceptable by Jesus' lovely, perfect praying. Father, give us hearts that are eager to obey your commands and give repentance where we fail to obey your commands. Forgive us for our cold prayers and liven them with gospel heat. We finish this exposition and we can attest the king's words put our hearts at peace. Father, your faithfulness is not dependent on our faithfulness. You do not reward us according to our righteousness. You reward us according to Jesus' righteousness. We look at the cross and it is a clear sign that you have indeed forgiven your errant children. Amen.